Mulweni, Dumalang, Sambonani, and welcome to the Avrik podcast, a podcast that aims to bring clarity to the concept of violence and its consequences in the lives of victims and survivor groups, as well as the perpetrators and their descendants. In this special episode, Rabia Abba Omar will be in conversation with Professor Zetu Matabeni about her work and scholarly, political, personal, and intellectual journey. I came to theory because I was hurting. The pain within me was so intense that I could not go on living. I came to theory desperate, wanting to comprehend, to grasp what was happening around and within me. Most importantly, I wanted to make the hurt go away. I saw in theory then a location for healing. That is Bell Hooks in her essay, Theory as Liberation Practice, Practice, published in 1991. I would recommend everyone to read it. I wanted to start here because much of my work as a scholar and activist has very much been influenced by feminist thinkers, leaders, teachers, activists, scholars, and creators, including Audre Lorde, Bell Hooks, Kathy Cohen, Elaine Salo, Desri Lewis, Habiba Bedron, Gabi Ngobu, Jabu Pereira, Jacqueline Koch, Janet Cherry, Keguro Macharia, Makuzana Taba, Mary Haynes, Oyeronke Oyewumi, Patricia Hill Collins, Patricia McFadden, Pumla Dinewa Kola, Prudence Mabele, Serena Dankwa, Stella Nyanzi, Esenyek, Tokozani Daba, Unoma Azua, Vasu Redi, Zanle Mokoli, and many, many more whose names appear in different ways in my work and have been part of me joining in academia and activist spaces. Unlike bell hooks, I was afraid of theory. I found it to be the place of pain, the thing I could not comprehend, too elitist and promoting separatism between the theorist and the activist, or marking the disconnect between theory and practice. It was in my world for some time, the hurt that couldn't go away. And later I learned to make the hurt go away. I had to face theory, look it in the eye, unpack it, understand it, tear it apart, and find new ways of seeing it. Bell Hooks reminded me, any theory that cannot be shared in everyday conversation cannot be used to educate the public. My beginnings are as an undergrad student at what was then the University of Port Elizabeth. It was the sociological encounter, or more specifically, an encounter with C. Wright Mills' sociological imagination. You would remember that if you did Sociology 101. As an undergrad, I quickly understood my place in the wider social, political, and historical context when I had to work as an intern in the Ford plant in Port Elizabeth. This is where my father had worked for as long as I had known him. I was 19 years old, and as a third-year student in sociology and an intern, I was earning 4,500 rands more than my father, who had been at Ford, for half of his life. I won't begin to talk about how this dynamic played itself out in our home. Safe to say, I found it completely unsettling that as an intern to the labor relations manager, I became privy to many details of my father's precarious work conditions and those of the many men and families in my community in Port Elizabeth. I read Das Kapital, the Communist Manifesto, but no claim to being a Marxist and no theory could help me unravel the pain of knowing that people would remain alienated from their work, be retrenched, dismissed, or their salaries cut without their full knowledge or sufficient preparation. Not that anything can prepare you for such life-changing circumstances. <clears throat> and that families and communities would be torn apart all because of capitalist gains. And yet I was part of it. The delivery of the bad news, the betrayal, and the impossibilities of unpack unpacking the workings of capitalism. And how, because of my education status, I was now my father's manager and had successfully formed part of the class. Class struggles shaped my formative years at university. It was the pain that pushed me further into sociology and to break the silencing that I was trapped in. My experience at Ford forced me to speak in ways I didn't imagine. Now, when I look back at my transcripts, I realize that I did much better in my third year modules than in the first and second year university. And that's just a side note, but I do credit pain for this achievement because as you know, I mean, to get into honors, you have to get above 65. Right? So first, second year, I was in my 50s. <laughs> so pain pushed me to 65. At honors and MA level, I studied industrial sociology, partly because I wanted to cleanse myself of the guilt and pain I felt accomplished to, and also because I was still hurting. And that is when bell hooks became real to me, as I quickly understood that it was through theory, a particular critical feminist lens and view to the world that would bring me some sort of comfort in community. In 2002, at the University of Pretoria, I was hired as a lecturer. 
and was linked to the newly formed Gender Studies Unit, which was part of the Sociology Department. How weird it felt for me to teach at that time as a 23-year-old feminist theories to pull much, much older, many who were husbands, fathers, teachers, mothers, government officials, choosing to continue their studies at Pretoria in the evenings. I was thrown in the deep end of an endless. I couldn't just swim. I had to hold my breath for as long as survival was a possibility. The University of Pretoria broke me and also made me. And for this, I have two scholars to thank, Professor Janice Klobelar and Dr. Nulunga Pomela, who both nurtured and simultaneously knocked my knees, as Janice would say it. The experience was brutal. The levels of racism, sexism from young Afrikaner students was unimaginable. But of course you can imagine because you get still not yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ageism and cultural manipulation and isolation from black folks, young and old, was incredible. And it did not help that I was an out and proud, young, brave, black bull dyke who didn't give a fuck. <laughs> so in many ways, as I'd like to console myself, I was a seductive, repulsive, and hyper-visible mindfuck that nobody wanted to go away, but kept pushing out anyway. Today, I credit UP for those years of pain, of isolation, and finding my feet as a young Black scholar in a deeply racist and sexist institution. It was during these moments of deep loneliness, of pain and hurt, that I rummaged deeper and deeper into theory. I went to bed with Black feminists, sometimes literally, <laughs> my feminists was, were always lurking around, but that's a story for another time. <laughs> I woke up next to black feminists, brushed my teeth to the sounds of their voices in my head, ate with them, taught my courses through them, cried with them, hid in them, and later resurfaced. In their works, I imagined my liberation and slowly became free and queer. In their book, Surfacing, on being black and feminist in South Africa, Desiree Lewis and Habiba Badran note that and I quote, freedom is expansive and multifaceted. It is not only linked to our liberation from material and ideological subordination, but also embedded in our richly erotic, sensual, and existential desires. In Black feminist theory, I connected deeper with my queerness. And I mentioned this specifically because it also marked the turn away from industrial sociology to LGBT studies and later queer studies. Let me take a small detour. So the turn was not so smooth. In 2002-2003, I attempted to publish my first single authored article in one journal I won't mention now. <laughs> Sometimes we all do this, and let me tell you, resist the temptation to do this on your own the first time. It's brutal. The paper I sought to publish was for my master's thesis, which was very much on HIV rates in the country. My training up to then had been very much as a quantitative researcher and someone very comfortable with statistics. But I also understood that the world needed qualitative explanations. In short, the experience of attempting my first publication is what this Judith Halberstam would call successful failure. <laughs> of course, Halberstam has a beautiful way of finding humor in failure. We see this in their book, The Queer Art of Failure. The paper was not only rejected, but the critique was so hardcore that I realized I was not in the right place and that all I could do was accept defeat and that this failure was to teach me something. For a year, I dealt with the comments from the reviewers until it became clear that I was not meant to publish in that form. So I took comfort later in my career when Hyberstam said, and I quote, under certain circumstances, failing, losing, forgetting, unmaking, undoing, unbecoming, not knowing may in fact offer more creative, more co cooperative, more surprising ways of being in the world. Failing is something queers do and have always done exceptionally well. For queers, failure can be a style or a way of life. And it can stand in contrast to the grim scenarios of success that depend upon trying and trying again. In fact, if success requires so much effort, then maybe failure is easier in the long run and offers different rewards. From a series of failures, losses, and rejections came my own queer turn turn inwards. Up till the mid-2000s, my involvement in LGBT and feminist organizing was outside the university, where I was part of organizing support groups, counseling networks, socials, and book discussions on all things queer and feminist. My world in the, evening, in the evenings and weekends was filled with lesbians, gays, sex workers, transgender, and bisexual people trying to grab the promise of the constitution. During the day, I struggled with being an imposter in the academy fighting battles with racist SLC students and young people who despised feminism even though they knew nothing about it and refused to read. When the struggle got untenable, as struggles do, I left the university with a six-month doctor's notice on my lifespan. Next time. A change had to come. 
Being given another lease on life, I chose to take a different direction, to join a health organization that was invested in public education on TB and HIV AIDS. Two years with doctors and government officials and piles of paperwork, my feet itched for a return to theory. The field of LGBT studies had blossomed in North America and parts of Europe. Many anthropologists, anthropologists and literary scholars were writing about being gay, lesbian, and out in the academy. I chose to follow that path, reading among others, Esther Newton, Gail Rubin, Kath Weston, few were sociologists and other social scientists and Black, including Mignon Moore, Kathy Cohen, E. Patrick Johnson, closer to home, Graham Reed, Russell Reddy, Mark Eprecht, Sylvia Tamale, Mark Gafisar, and Edwin Cameron, whose seminal text defined desire, desire, gay and lesbian lives in South Africa, gave me a very strong entry point to how I wanted to position my own work. That text has continued to be among the key texts in gay and lesbian scholarship in this context. In 2007, I joined WISER. I thought I was WISER. <laughs> the Wits Institute for Social and Economic Research. I joined WISER as a doctoral. This was my second attempt at a PhD. The failure of the first one is a story I would tell another time. <laughs> Weiser was, and I believe still is, an elitist school, with scholars priding themselves of blowing in high theory. Having thrived in low theory for a long time, in failure and not knowing anything, I embraced the challenge that Weiser presented, often successfully masquerading as a real scholar. The performance was exhausting, and I'm grateful to my circle of crazy queer feminist kin who ensured that I would live out of my brain most evenings and weekends. It was only when I started my doctoral studies at Wits University that I realized that what I was looking for as a scholar did not exist, and therefore I had to create it. My endeavor was to study a sensitive topic, women's sexualities and gender identities, through the lens of gay and lesbian studies. As a field, that did not exist in South Africa at the time. And at the time, there were only a couple of articles on Black lesbians in particular. Having found my niche area, I rushed to write about same-sex marriage between Black women, there was a political campaign that I was part of to get the Civil Union Act in place at the time. I wrote about politics of belonging, gender identity, the connections between race and sexuality, etc. And the list was endless. Over time, because of the rush, I've had to revisit many of these initial publications. And so I will now unpack the shift that I made from lesbian and gay studies, LGBT studies, to what I call African queer studies. But let me start talking about methods. So as I said, in 2007, I embarked on a study to investigate the lives of Black lesbian women in Gauteng. At that time, the bit of work that existed and written about Black lesbians positioned us as victims of violence, hate crimes, or related our existence to that of gay men. My interest was to tap into a terrain that is really focused on, a terrain that has contributed to our invisibility and silence as Black lesbian women, disregarding our lives and our experiences. Existing scholarship also tended to desexualize female same-sex relationships by not paying attention to the desire and erotic sexual relationships between women or viewing women's same-sex sexualities through a heterosexual gaze. Writing and researching as a Black lesbian myself, my, my research sought to offer a different lens from which to see and understand women's worlds, to, under, to undertake research in areas that have been considered taboo, unresearched, or working, um, working with those who have been represented in ways that limit their agency. Studying sexuality and gender identity as an African person was considered in some quarters academic suicide, many scholars told me, or at least I would be ostracized. It was a deeply political project with many risks, challenges, and discoveries. Four notable points on methods are worth mentioning. One, minding our language and the terms we use. Research is a delicate process and requires constant negotiations. One negotiation arising out of my research was the terms I used to recruit participants to my study, how I would write about them or represent them. As much as the term lesbian was or is popularly used in research, it is used with caution. And I can talk a little bit about that. But two years into my fieldwork, two participants I had interviewed over a long time wrote back to me requesting that I withdrew their interviews from my research as they did not fit under the lesbian category. They identified as trans men. Like, oh God, okay, there I go losing research data. <laughs> While this was an ethical dilemma, pause is necessary on the ways in which research enforces restrictions on people's identities. This links to the second point on methods, identity shifts. and Some of the limits of social research has been exposed through researching lesbian, bisexual, um, gay, transgender communities, communities which have been overlooked for a long time. As mentioned earlier, in my research, I had participants who transitioned from female to male. While I reflected on the implications of their transition as an ethical issue when I wrote about this, I neglected noticing how in framing the research and the recruitment criteria also relied on gender and sex binaries. This is something I 
had to deal with because my work was challenging sex and gender binaries, but here I was trapped in them. What emanated from that research was the realization that the categories woman in same-sex relationships and lesbian appeared fixed and were exclusionary. What happened in that research is participants exercised their right, as stipulated in the consent forms that I gave them, to withdraw from the study at any time. Their transition from female to male and associated denial of the category woman or lesbian highlighted the way in which the initial research contract between me and them had changed from its original position. For more on this debate, the piece I wrote called My Best Participant informed consent. Um, the third issue related to the ethical issue was complicated by what people call the insider-outsider dynamic. Often research has claimed that to do research, we have to be distant and objective. I found this demand for objectivity facilitated by distance impossible mm -hmm. and othering. Research can be transformative, even when done at home and in one's familiar settings. Research within one's group offers various opportunities, but at the same time can be very complex and challenging. Tensions of the binaries of insider, outsider, friend, or researcher, threaten integrity, patience, and the belief that knowledge can transform injustices. Kirin Nyan's essay, How, Na How Native is a Native Anthropologist, became a key text I would return to for the duration of my research, as I had to continually interrogate my ability not to see well because of my closeness, or negotiate the terrains through which I was seeing the world. The insider-outsider dynamic became more apparent in my work when I had to analyze and write about violence, death, and dying as a Black queer person. The fourth is shifting representations. Lastly, being a pioneer in a field of research came with a lot of things. One of them was to sustain this new field and develop it. Focusing on representations, specifically shifting representations, seemed key to that political project. And so out of the doctoral project, a film was born. So I put together with a colleague, Breaking the Box, uh, Stories of Black Lesbian. My interest in a visual representation of Black lesbian lives was necessitated by the need to make visible what African societies termed taboo, non-existent or un-African. And so in the film, I followed Black South African women who challenged these notions and were making significant impact on their communities. One of them is Zanila Mokoli, whose photographs and works, I mean, you know Zanila Mokoli, um, have, I have written about extensively. So in one essay in Queerness, Race and Intimacy, I write about Mokoli's photograph where Mokoli is lying down with uh, the partner at the time. And the image is called Caitlin and I. So I write in this way. The image moves beyond popular debates about whether same-sex sexuality is access acceptable or tolerable, as has been suggested by the assertion that homosexuality is un-African. Rather, it represents an image of queer desire. As a viewer, one is asked to lay claim to feelings and desires evoked by this image. This is the ambivalent, uncomfortable, and sometimes exoticized territory that one enters when answering Moholi's earlier question, what do we see when we look at ourselves? The question invites us to see ourselves represented in these images. Black queers have often felt that they and their desires and stories are invisible to society. Black Ola argues, Black lesbians in South Africa, particularly, have been highly visible manifestations of the undesirable. Forms of violation have acted to remove them from society and from history. In this image, however, the Black female queer body holds a powerful position within the discourse of desire. It both satisfies the yearning to see oneself represented as well as to speak from that position of power. So the year is 2011. I'm at the University of Cape Town and employed as a researcher at the prestigious Institute for Humanities in Africa, HUMA. At HUMA, I chose to follow the path most logical to my research, to ask, what does it mean to be a queer human in South Africa, in Africa at this time? The question led me to a number of interventions, including the annual series I curated over three years, Queer in Africa. The series birthed three publications, which Pumla read earlier, Reclaiming African Queer Perspectives on Sexual and Gender Identity, Queer in Africa, LGBTIQ Identity, and Activism, and Beyond the Mountain, Queer Life in Africa's Gay Capital. In all these books, the intention was clear. The path to create African queer scholarship had to be collaborative. I invested time, resources, and effort to working with activists, artists, young and established scholars to offer new lenses on queerness in the continent. With Jabu Pereira, we positioned queer as an inquiry to, into the present, as a critical space that pushes the boundaries of what is embraced as normative. So in the last 10 years, this has been my passion, to push the boundaries of what is considered and embraced as normative, particularly within the academy, which is where I mostly spend the bulk of my time. Since 2011, I was part of forming the Black Academic Caucus at the University of Cape Town, a space that was, among other things, a challenge to the normative whiteness of the institution. So by 2015, when Rose Must Fall started, I was already deep in the throes of challenging the heterosexist, patriarchal, and racist normative structures of that institution. The questions 
my project was asking, what does it mean to be a queer human in Africa today, laid the foundation to unsettle many of the restrictive regimes of the normative that inhibit Black survival in the, in the academy. I wrote critically of the institution, was blamed for all forms of mobilizing and instigating students during those sit-ins. <laughs> and by the time FISMA's fall happened, whiteness had to turn in, inwards. And it always finds a way to do more than survive. Wow, thank you very much. To start off with failure, hinted and spoken a bit about your experiences with failure and as young and also seasoned academics. What are some of the things that have helped you work through that and guided you? Not only like understand theory is very important mm. and other things maybe that you speak about, experiences especially in predominantly white institutions and challenging those heteronormative and very um, in many ways, racist. Mm. Yeah, that's a nice question. Once I, I thought I would be maybe an artist and probably would have failed in that. I did fail art anyway at school. So, mm. but uh, what, what I like about art is it allows you to imagine. So the space of imagination and the imaginative is very important. Um, and so even in failure, I've found that, you know, you can imagine other possibilities, you know? Um, so even as Harvestam says, um, in their book, you know, it, it, it does allow for other possibilities to exist. And sometimes we think, oh, my God, if I feel so badly, like there's no other way. But there's always a way. You know, you, you know, we just need to imagine a different way of existing and being successful at failure. And sometimes it's OK because <laughs> it will open up. other. So that's the space of imagination. Imagination for me has been very important um, and important in, in, even in my work, like, you know, just to, to also. So when I was. Writing initially, I was very much structured, you know, as a you know a quantitative researcher. You know, you have to do things in a particular way. And when I saw that that didn't work, it allowed me space to to express myself differently, to to write from a different kind of position, you know, to write about what I cared about, to write about what I was saying and what I was experiencing, and to also to write about things that would really change the world um, to some extent, you know. And so it became important that you know someone who would pick up something that I wrote would say, oh my God, and which, which happens a lot. Oh my God, like, you know, I feel like you wrote, you know, you wrote this for me yeah. and I gave it to my parents and they read it and they're like, oh, okay, so it's fine for you to be gay. <laughs> and I think imagination, especially when we think of um, fighting the systems that exist around us is so important mm -hmm. in imagining other ways of being and other ways of living. Thank you for that. I also want to touch on citation mm -hmm. and you have you started off by introducing a lot of the scholars and yeah. that have influenced your life influenced your work um, and something that we discussed in a reading group recently was how do you and you started off as a, a sociologist sorry mm -hmm. how do you move away solely relying on the old white men who have <laughs> made your field mm -hmm. and you've developed a whole new field in South Africa and in mm -hmm. Africa and so where, how does citation play into that and how can you sort of shift away and set your own pace? Yeah. yeah. You know, citation is so important. Um, and I think it's something that we take for granted, actually. I mean, we, we are asked to cite all the time, right? Write an essay cites. <laughs> Don't plagiarize. <laughs> um, and yet, you know, um, our access to information is limited because of who teaches us. So we tend to cite to have access. Part of it is you will have to, you have to look beyond what, what is presented, you know? You also need to realize that academics or scholars are also limited. We are limited, you know? My worldview is a very particular world. I can't, there's certain things I'm not interested in. So if someone, if someone wants to trace Marx and Engels and everybody, I'm like, I'm not interested. Like, yeah, I go to somebody else. Um, <laughs> but if you want, if you want a different kind of trajectory, I'll be there with you. So, Part of it, part of that the citation practice is also to expand your own access to people initially. I mean, I, I know in, in, we fight a lot in, uh, in the university about this supervision. <coughs> um, I always believe that postgrad students should not have one supervisor. <laughs> because that already like yeah. limits your view. Because <laughs> your supervisor only has one thing. But anyway, it doesn't matter whether you take one supervisor or not. You also have access to a whole lot of other things. It's one way of expanding your, your, your citation practices. It's also, you know, you also can start reading groups as you do, uh, and you also can get um, a, a community of readers, which is what I always ask people to do. And they don't have to be within the academic space. Your community of readers could be your friends, you know, who are going to read a concept of like, dude, I have no idea what you're saying here. And that helps you unpack what you're saying so that you become much more accessible. 
and easy to, to read. So your citation is, is, is about you taking seriously what it is that you are saying and who you're saying it with. Having those conversations as well between mm-hmm. yourself and people that you're choosing to cite. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, uh, when I was when I was uh, <laughs> starting, <laughs> my supervisor used to ask me, who are your interlocutors? I was like, I hate this word. I don't even know what it means. <laughs> who are your interlocutors? I'm like, what the, what is that? So who are the people you are in conversation with? You know, uh, duh, I can't be in conversation with Marx. Dead. <laughs> you know, who am I in conversation with? And I had to like find those people. Who am I talking to? Yeah, is it my grandmother, colleague? Is it somebody else who writes? So you know, that forced me to go and figure out who do I want to talk to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you do it. I mean, you choose your friends, right? Yeah. So <laughs> scholarship is like that. Choose your friends. Choose the people you want to be in conversation with. Um, Choose who you want to feature as well. And, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I mean, these are political things. I mean, I'm making it sound so easy because it also, I mean, part of it, you will be, um, and Bell Hooks writes about this, whereas, I mean, she changed her writing style. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She's not citing in a way that academics would cite. Uh, and, and then she also said that a lot of students said to her that they couldn't cite her work because their professors were saying it's not. <laughs> so... So, you know, see, it's, it's yeah. such a political thing. Um, so even though you want to cite, you may cite, you know, this conversation today. Yeah. And then mm-hmm. someone's like, no, but it's not peer-reviewed. <laughs> like, no, there were 30 other people in the room. <laughs> <laughs> so there are also those kinds of politics. Yeah. Absolutely. And maybe you could touch on this more, this this change to, or this not even change, but it's moved, making your work more accessible. You've worked in film and in art, and you referenced Bell Hooks and... And there are many other writers who worked from academia to making their work more whether it's an essay form or in other types. Can you expand on that? Um, again, it was just imagining and also just wanting to be free, mm-hmm. express freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, there, certainly, I mean, there are a lot of other things that I couldn't, um, yeah, I couldn't say in academic vacations, you know. My language is so very much words I speak. <laughs> and sometimes I like to use those words and, and they can't feature in academic. Although recently, I mean, some people are doing this in the US. But I mean, you know, I, I've wanted to express in different ways. To work beyond, I mean, as I said, you know, I see my worldview as one that moves beyond the boundaries of the normative. So if, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be restricted to no one can say, no, you're not really a sociologist. Like, oh, duh, okay, fine. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, you know, I know how structures work. I know this, this basics. Um, but I also know what people want to hear. And that matters to me more than you acknowledging me as a sociologist. Yeah. So I use different forms to speak different audiences. So, for example, when I do, I remember when I did the film, Breaking out of the it came out of the PhD, but I knew this PhD is not going to be read by everybody. And I mean, there's a whole community of blacklists who need to read it. So how do I make it accessible? So I get into a film and you know tell the story. And and we're so lucky that New Metro uh, Cinema said, okay, we will screen the film, and they screened. It. They were so impressed that uh, for three nights in a row. The cinema house was full to capacity, you know, people on the floors and just because yeah. people were like, yeah, we want to see, we yeah. want to see content. Yeah. On, we want to see ourselves reflected. Yeah. Wanna, yeah. yeah. And I mean, those people didn't read the page, but when they meet me, they're like, yeah, I read your PhD. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, it makes it makes a difference. One of the things that I'm doing now is to translate some of my work to his course. And it's a very difficult yeah. task because I, I don't have concepts. And so I have to create them and, and, and I'm actually embarrassed even say this sometimes I really like freaking <laughs> I don't have the concept to talk about my work to the people who matter to me the most. Mm-hmm. um so now I'm busy working with this and doing lots of radio interviews and of course to talk to to practice like yeah. talking about queerness yeah. in this course it's very difficult yeah. um, and of course it's going to land very differently now mm-hmm. um, very different from how I write mm-hmm. or how I produce visual stuff and I want to ask about this process translation mm-hmm. and how do you, you workshop with groups to make words and concepts? How are you figuring this out? Yeah, uh, yeah, I do work with groups. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a group who is based in Cape Town, mm-hmm. actually, part of Chisimani, um, and they've been doing a lot of like Wikipedia stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I work with um, two of the people. But um, yeah, I mean, part of it started that <laughs> I started by going back to the archive to say, okay, mm-hmm. what are the words that existed? 
uh, that talk about queerness that I can introduce into, into scholarship um, and then unpack that, use it uh, across a term and unpack it in English and then have to go back talk about that pattern in this course. It's a challenging task. It's a challenging task. That's when you realize that yeah, your English, English has done a lot. English is very powerful. It's very powerful. And done a lot of damage. So to now touch on the work community that teaches money and other activists, how do you, um, some of the discussions I've had with people who are in academia and working in activist space, sort of being called out for the work that they do in activist spaces, or they've had struggles from university administrations. Um, and you've also led a lot of social change or worked on a lot of social change at university so how do you manage that and how do you work to balance that i don't (laughs) (laughs) no i don't i remember you know when i when i arrived at the university of cape town the vice chancellor vice chancellor was max price (laughs) (laughs) and uh, i mean we liked each other (laughs) so he introduces me when he's welcoming all uh, uh new academics mm-hmm. you know this one is dr so-and-so from this faculty and, blah, blah, blah. and this one zetu is just an activist <laughs> like, oh, okay no that's cool max <laughs> just an activist so i had to embrace that yeah. um because i you know it, it said to me okay well if you're not going to be seen as a scholar mm-hmm. you better be good at you know agitating mm-hmm. within the academy and i took it that i will agitate and agitated the hell out of him <laughs> i don't know how I, I, I'm not sure if I really balanced it, but what I did start noticing is that universities became much more open spaces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially around you know the queer thing is kind of hip. You know, people want to be seen to be let's do the right thing. <laughs> <laughs> let's include it. Let's include queer people. So I was there at the right time yeah. uh, and brought lots of Africans. Yeah, <laughs> so I'm speaking back, you know, through the university, and it was nice. For, for the investor to be seen in that way. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it was it was negotiating, actually, that mm, masquerading again. I think I, I got very good at that. Play, playing playing with my own position of power, because I do accept that I, you know, I had a very big position. Playing with my own position of power and negotiating how, how the institution can manipulate that position and how we can, you know, hurt each other in the process but of course it's always the individual that gets hurt by this okay that's just gonna ask yeah i'm sure that that must do as well masquerade and navigate the way that the university and use the work that you're doing yeah, yeah. i mean those are hard things i mean I mean, we're all at universities we know how institutions work it is and i think i don't think it's it's not, it's not something we openly talk about mm-hmm. you know there's an assumption that you know it's part of our scholarship you know do something about it in our writing etc but there's a lot of hurt, a lot of pain among scholars. Because institutions are, I mean, I talked a little bit about the imposter. So there's the imposter syndrome. There's, you know, being pushed down, being told you're not good enough, mm-hmm. you know, being rejected, all kinds of things that can brutalize you. Mm-hmm. Never mind these other like systems. Yeah. Of course, then there's other, you know, the, the racism, the sexism, and the institutional stuff. That So there's a lot that you have to navigate. But I mean, I always say, you know, we also can exit. We tell abused academics are so scared to leave the university when it's abusing them. Um, I know it sounds easy to say because what else do you go to? You know, people say, but it's my job. But, you know, it is a position. It isn't a relationship. We also need to accept that we have, mm-hmm. we can use it in mm-hmm. different ways. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about how have you passed on that ideas of subverting power to students. So I know you teach ins and my own experience of it has been incredibly transformative in my life. And I want to ask you about, I guess, student and academic or student and staff solidarity at university campuses in subverting that power. You know what? I'm going to be a little bit controversial. <laughs> Students mustn't trust staff completely. I'm just being a professional. Partly because as staff members, we, we have salaries, you know, and once you get paid, it's comfortable. And mm-hmm. there are certain things you can do and you can't do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I say this also because I've seen it. I've seen it happening um, where there's a solidarity between students and staff. And students are imagining that you know things are going to change in this in the university space. And staff members are thinking this capability is going to take me to the next level of being a professor, the HOD. Um, and so that relationship. Mm-hmm. And and I think sometimes we're not honest enough to say the stakes are. And, mm-hmm. I mean, we're human. We can talk. About. I mean, I just in my experience. 
working with many of the people in the Black Academic Caucus, it was sad to realize that actually many people wanted the pie. Who wanted to be DVCs, VC, deans? And that was a lot of the critique of the yeah, yeah. And and uh, and and students felt so betrayed that we thought we were fighting the system, and yet actually you wanted to be in the system and in a way that we're going to enforce. So. You know, I think there's a, a need for some kind of honesty. Mm. And it's not to say that people shouldn't have ambitions, but I think it's, you know, we can just be much more open. You know, what, what is it that we want from certain struggles yeah. without, without erasing the solidarity? Because it is important. And university <coughs> outside of university solidarity, I think we often, especially what came out during this fall, was Rhodes Fall as well, this peak of university silos and students higher, in higher education protesting, but how is that affecting wider South Africa? Mm. You've done a lot of work with organizations outside of the institution mm. so and how do you negotiate that as well with you for yourself how to exist in organizations outside the university that and also the more on the impact of that you do outside of the outside of academia you've got your films and your work but on the ground activist like working mm. actually that's for me that's the most that's the least complicated space for me yeah for many years i was part of an organization called free gender it's a black lesbian organization in Kailich. we did incredible i mean policies i mean we we changed the civil union act you know <laughs> this was a, a group of black people, you know don't read policies but they were like okay there's a professor you read the policy and you tell us what to do um and, you know, doing a whole range of things like um, sensitizing cookies. And so this work for me is, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it is less complicated. Mm-hmm. There's also an awareness of each individual's power, yeah. you know, and position and, and, mm-hmm. and class position. Mm-hmm. You know, people know that I come from the academic space. Uh, I come with certain privileges and also resources, which I use fully and openly without, you know, demanding there's a particular kind of exchange. Uh, Because what I do outside of the academic space does change my life. It does affect my life. It's important for me that we're going to have a bill against hate crimes. Because I know one day I'm going to be murdered because I'm a lesbian. So, you know, that bill is going to somehow support my family, what they think will be justice. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that, that... you know, activist spaces are, are, for me, as I say, they're much less complicated. Yeah, I chair an organization called uh, Gala, which is a gay, lesbian, well, it's a queer archive. And it's one of the few, well, it's one, it's the only archive actually in the continent. And we do a lot of, you know, support to academics. So as an archive, we have this immense uh, archive where people, where researchers can just come, mm-hmm. you know, and access the archive on, on South Africa and South African queer history. Mm-hmm and support, you know, help them with their publications, publish their work if they want uh, in different formats, yeah. do exhibitions and stuff like that. So, yeah, so that that work for me is, as I say, it's, it's much more fulfilling and it's less complicated mm-hmm. because, you know, it's clear who, who is the person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, it, and people are clear about how I engage. Yeah. And that, that openness and that honesty is there. Yeah. And you can yeah. show off with that. Um, so this is a bit of a subject because it's relating to archives, but I mm. want to ask you about your experiences with archives. You're using archives in your translation, you, mm. you work at Gala. What does refiguring the archive mean and look like now, um, especially one that's representative of queer people being left out of the archive mm. traditionally? Yeah, the archive is changing. I mean, when I've been part of Gala for a long time, I think now 11 or 13 years, um, Gala was started by Graham Reed, who's an anthropologist, and it was out of his own desire to see some kind of representation by gay people. So uh, we arrived at the archive and we realized actually part of it is about white gay boys, and we had to change that deliberately. And, and the work was to recreate that, because if you've been so invisible and hit and invisibilized, mm-hmm. then part of it, create yourself and insert yourself. And so that was the work that we had um, go and do a lot of it, look for people, get them to donate their material to the, you know, uh, people in Cape Town, all over the country and ask them, you know, if you have, if you have photo albums, give them to us, we'll store them. And then researchers write your story, write a story about Midi Ahmad. Everyone knows Zaki Ahmad, but nobody knows Midi Ahmad, the sister. And yet she's the one who started everything. <laughs> but, yeah. Mm-hmm. The boy again, gay boy, becomes more famous than the woman. You see, so it's things like this: informing people that you know 
your story matters. Doesn't matter how small you feel is. Yeah. The archive will make it big. <laughs> we'll bring everyone. Yeah. 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 So part of figuring the archive is to community sensitizing the project mm-hmm. to inform people that they, you know, there is this deliberate effort to try and include you in the present and the history and in the future. And mm-hmm. so we want you, we want you to be seen, we want you to be represented in your own terms. So and I can imagine that a lot of care into that, care for the story, their story and their, their lives. And maybe you can speak about some of that care and the, the cultivation of care and what care looks like in the work that you do and in academia and outside of academia. Ooh. Wide space. Care is exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I started here by thanking Pumla for the care mm-hmm. that she's shown and Azil and Caesar. It's exhausting work. Mm-hmm. But it is, it gives a human experience, you know, and that's how I want to live my life, to live a life that is a human, you know, that is filled with humanity. So care is part of that, part of that, you know, to, to slow down, to see each person being as a full human being that you can take care of in any small way. And I think it's so important for us in the academy, because as I said, our work is so devoid of care, especially now because we are told to publish, publish, publish. We don't even care about the words you put on paper. Mm-hmm. Um, so how, do, how are you going to care about how they land on you know, somebody? Um, and then that physical caring. Um, but it is a lot of work. It has exhausted me. I'm not going to lie. Mm-hmm. I've been called, and I know Noms are more calls, uh, Humbla, Dabs. And I'm like, yo, <laughs> I remember this term that UCT students used to call me mama, sissy, auntie, daba or daps. And daps is aunt, but the sister to your father. And and the relationship between a, a niece or nephew with that aunt is one that says signals to the aunt that you're supposed to do all the care that the father, my father could not do. So when she was saying that to Prof Pumbla, I was like, whoa, what a burden. Yeah. But, you know, continuing saying it also suggests that, you know, Pumbla keeps playing it. Um, so, you know, these things, we listen to them and we don't realize what's actually going on. But mm-hmm. there's, there's a, yeah, the mm-hmm. language. Yeah, but it's exhausting work, as I mm-hmm. say. I mean, I, for me, I found it really, really difficult because also, we, we, as I say, we are, we are in a space that doesn't offer the conditions of care. So a lot of the care work comes from within. You know, you have to come, you have to bring the care tools mm-hmm. from the outside into the academic space, mm-hmm. which breaks that thing apart. And then, you know, you have to then collect all the students and care for them in many different ways. I mean, students would come. I mean, I'm sure you know this. You're in the university space. You know, they don't have taxi money. They don't have food. <laughs> they, they've lost their residence. You know, there's just so many things. And you're like, okay, now must I take you to my house? <laughs> yeah. No, must I go look for a shelter? You know, must I, you know, have a budget yeah. for students? You know, all these kinds of things. I mean, this is outside even the academic work. You still have to help with the essay. Make sure you don't grade them, that they fail. They need to pass. Because it works on their self-esteem. Hey, yeah. Care work is hard. Yeah. And I think something that I've seen as well being in a university like Stellenbosch is how care work isn't fair. Mm. And had lecturers who I immediately will go to mm. if there is a problem mm. where there's others who no one will mm. speak to about anything. Mm. And and then you know that that burden of care and providing care for people mm. is on that lecture. Mm. And I can imagine that's yeah. I mean, you yeah. know, it's it's gendered, it's racialized, exactly. it's exactly. yeah, especially yeah. in institutions yeah. that are very like white and normative, heteronormative, etc. So yeah. yeah, you know who gets to do the, the burden of care. And then who gets hurt by the institution the most? And now a question on how do you care for yourself? And uh, I design. <laughs> Very good at that. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah. I resigned at UWC six months into the job. Yeah. I take my I take myself very seriously. Yeah. In funny ways. <laughs> uh, no, but that's actually a side thing. I do shut out a lot of things. I live remotely. So I don't live in a city and, uh, and also I'm not on social media. I find that in this day and age, that's a lot of care work, mm-hmm. self-care. So I miss out on pretty much everything until someone tells me <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I can miss it. And now I'd like to open the floor. My name is Ijoma. I'm a PhD student uh, in 
political science, yeah. but I like coming to the center just to get the, mm. the juicy parts of academia that um, I really enjoy. Yeah. Um, the question I had written down as you were taking us through your journey in academia, I think what I wanted to know was what points did you um, kind of use your own discernment uh, to give yourself permission to take up space? Mm. Where you say, okay, Clearly, I can't ask for it. I can't beg them uh, without stripping some aspect of my humanity. So I think for me, I w- was it maybe during your doctoral stages in postgrad, or was it already when you were in your undergrad you realized that? I think for me, I not so I can copy you, but just so I can gauge, you know, yeah. where you were in your overall journey to say, you know what, if this, I'm just gonna take it for myself yeah. and create it and and trust your intuitive voice that is often told that this is not legitimate this is not academia mm. um and at what point did they accept that as well to say okay well not, you're not leaving but we're gonna have to accept you mm. yeah just maybe the yeah, nuances of that yeah thank you so much that's a beautiful question and Jim. i mean this was a very difficult thing for me and um i think you know i mean i think to get to that shift i needed a life-changing experience and i did mention that i left University of Pretoria with a six-month notice from a doctor. So I actually left the University of Pretoria pretty much in a wheelchair. (laughs) Whatever had happened was too much. And and it was that moment, the moment of realizing that actually, you know, if I I don't show up fully as me, I might just die without people not knowing. And since then, I've been so preoccupied with death. writing about it, thinking about it, you know, theorizing it, etc. Um, and also not just death, but wanting the ability to live well and to live fully. And so that moment, that moment of when, when they said to me, you, you might just have six months to live. I was like, <laughs> I've already lost the life. I might as well. And so by then, by the time I went into the PhD, and I remember the, for the PhD, I had a, an interview of 13 people from Wiser. And they asked me ridiculous questions. And I was like, people, don't give me this fellowship or not. Like, money for it. Like, you want to support me or not? Like, I'm not yet interested in your finances. Like, I just want to do a PhD and I know what I want to do. Um, so from that moment, I was like, yeah, this is me. No compromise. So it, it, it took a moment of near death, which was unnecessary. You know, I mean, I didn't have to, and nobody should. Um, hey, I had more than six months. <laughs> I am Azul, and I'm from Avric. Um, and I, co- I am a researcher, but I also coordinate the postgraduate program. Mm. And this is, as you obviously know, is always a very um, stressful and emotional time for postgraduate students because mm. it's submitting proposals, it's submitting final drafts, and everyone is emotional and stressed and what I keep hearing over and over again from all the students like I've heard it like six times today already just in separate conversations and which I know very well is imposter syndrome which you've been speaking people saying I just don't know if I can do it I'm so uncertain I have so much doubt I and it's something that you've highlighted so how how does what does one do about it yeah good (laughs) difficult question (laughs) and it lasts for a long time I, I don't know what I did you know except to accept that if I don't know it, I just don't know it. Oh, that's it. Like, I'm not going to know everything. And thank goodness that I got the training at that place where I said, you know, there I had to masquerade as a real scholar. I mean, they were reading texts. I was like, I know what they're saying. <laughs> but I agree. I should remember keep saying, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I get you and I, I don't get you. <laughs> so, you know, at, at some point, you just have to accept, you know, you maybe it's just not meant for you in that way, you know access it in a different way elsewhere. Um, and, and for me, it was just like, as I, I mean, I, I struggled, I struggled for the law for a long time. And I can tell you actually, one of the struggles that I had, I'm not going to mention the name. So one year, 20, I write a piece. And, um, and this piece, um, I, sa- I send it to a journal. It's a special issue. I send it to a journal. And, and I know the people who are doing the special issue. I'm in conversation with them. And, and they said, okay, we'll, we'll send it out for review. So, so, and then at the same time, I'm invited to a, a symposium 
So I go and I present this paper. It was still in draft form. I mean, it hadn't gone for review yet. So I present this paper. And at the end of my presentation, and, and the symposium is like a huge symposium. And then a woman comes to a very senior scholar says, says, no, 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 I've read it. And your name was like, what do you mean? Says, yes, I'm publishing a, um, and this piece. And it's not you. I'm like, no, it's... So she says, who else has read? And I said, I submitted it to a publication, a special issue. And um, and then she says, who? who's the editor of the special issue? So I mentioned two names. The look on her face when I say the other name, you know, then I'm like, no, wait. <laughs> so is it like that person write it and said, yes, this person whom you know very well sent this piece as hers for me to publish. So I'm like, the whole thing, including the picture I'm talking about? She says, yes, the whole thing. <laughs> so I was like, whoa. Up, up until this moment, I've been working on this thing of this imposter syndrome. You know, I'm not good enough, not good enough. Now, what happens at this moment, this thing solidifies. But it, in a funny way, it says, you are so good that a senior scholar can steal your work, put their name on it, and get it published. But then what it did in my head was put me further, further deep into this thing. Mm-hmm. I was like, and then I went and I asked colleagues, asked the union, academics union, I've got this problem. I need to figure out how to solve it. You know what happened? This is now what happens when you work in academic institutions. At the moment I mentioned the person's name, the word, like I said, she's a senior scholar, very famous. Nobody knows who you are. So you're on everybody, including the academics I was working with, who I was close to, and I trusted. And they said, on your own. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm not helping you with your question. <laughs> but I'm just trying to say to you that these things exist and we have to find alternative ways of, because we're not going to find the solution within the academic space. That's my experience. I couldn't let go of that imposter syndrome within the academic space. I had to go and strengthen myself elsewhere you know, find, form myself elsewhere and know my sense of belonging elsewhere and know that it's okay. It's okay if, you know, if this proposal is not perfect. It's okay. You know, it's not the end of every world. It's just the end of the proposal. (laughs) And actually it's going to pass. You're going to do the revisions. That's another thing. You're going to do the revisions, yeah? And revisions are also okay. You don't have to get it the first time around, yeah? And that's the thing we need to understand. I mean, but also the unfortunate thing is that sometimes feedback can be so brutal. And that's the other thing we have to do better, to be much more caring in how we give feelings. You know, make a student feel like you are worthless, you don't know anything. I mean, you yourself don't. So just be nice and just Mm -hmm. help the students. Just, yeah. So just keep encouraging them that, you know, might not get better. But with time, you're going to find different ways of you know, working through it. And I really love what you're saying about finding your worth in other spaces mm. also, because that you also bring into your academic work, which mm. enriches it so much yeah. also. Yeah. I, I actually want to kind of also link to, to the question about um, imposter syndrome and then what horrible story you just told. And I can't help thinking about, especially in your PhD, many people kind of put everything in it. I mean, apart from your PhD, sometimes it, it becomes your life. So when that falls apart, it, it's hard to to get the yourself out of that dark hole that you fall into. And then when you encounter supervisors or superiors who have this power where you can't do anything, yeah, I guess what I want to ask is, isn't that an institutional problem that we should try to change? I mean, um, bullying is an actual thing. This power imbalance where you as student or as junior or whatever can't um, can't really report or, or do anything against um, uh, that kind of bullying in institutional spaces. So is that not something that needs to be dealt with um, from higher up, especially if, if people higher up have experienced that in the past, shouldn't they kind of be a push to, I don't know how you can fix it, but you're trying to fix it in some way because people are losing their lives. Um, just in the beginning of the year, I know one of uh, a PhD student at UCT took their own life because yeah. of the pressures and the unfair treatment. They had xenophobic um, interactions as well. So yeah, how do we deal with that as an institution? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think that, and that's where we fail because actually 
one of the reasons why these kinds of bullying tactics survive or thrive is everybody gets trained into them. You know, the university becomes a manufacturer you know, of this kind of toxicity. Mm-hmm. And it's also weird because there are many scholars who write about these kinds of things, but actually we can't put the two together. We can't, you know, put the practice and the theory within the academic space. And the more you try to create these spaces that are much more, I mean, I know at UCT, the students try to create like, um, in one department, we try to create like a healing circle where you come every, you know, every week you come and you just talk about, unpack the pain that the institution has done to, and then find a way to collectively heal so that you can start, start the week differently. But then the moment these things become institutionalized, then they fall back into the trap. No, now you have to report the healing circle. The healing circle can't happen on Tuesdays because Tuesdays we have whatever departmental thing. Or the healing circle needs funding and this funding can't come from this pocket of money. It has to come from that, you know? Yeah. So institutions are part of manufacture. It's It's like a factory. So we need to be conscious of this, that sometimes... Sometimes, as like Dennis was saying, like the school, the school doesn't do everything that schooling should do. So universities also don't offer everything. And sometimes, yeah, the bullying that you experience in the institution, trust me, because the bullies are still there, they, the institution is not going to be the one helping you deal with it. It's not going to help you heal through that bullying, you know. So we need to find, you know, create alternative spaces. Not that we allow the institution to continue the bullying and to continue putting people down. But we also need to be conscious of the fact that because it manufactures the hierarchy, it is a factory of hierarchization. It's a factory of ensuring that there's subordination and there's all kinds of things. Until we we dismantle that kind of factory, then people aren't gonna aren't gonna heal. I mean, we we, we pride ourselves. I say, you know, when I was when I was an undergrad, you know, my 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 professors used to like. Do this, do this. No, we don't have to repeat that. It didn't work for you. It hurt you. So try something else. Try justice. Try kindness. Try caring. You know, start your day with your check-in. Have regular teas where the students can come and don't feel that, you know, my professor is somebody I just need to see during supervision. The professor is a human being who couldn't sleep last night. His kid is worried. Yeah, but become, the person becomes human, humanize us. Yeah, so small little things like that so that we can start changing the culture of hurtful institutions. Yeah, it's small little things because we're not going to be able to deal with, I mean, the rigidity at the top is too much. I think us here, we can slowly do small little acts of kindness. It will change somebody's life. But when you come to present your proposal, it's not such a horrible experience. Mm-hmm. You know, when you come for supervision, it's not, you don't go home that you are this most stupid person. It's not just a people. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we have two more questions. Um, I'm Lisekho. I'm doing my thesis, my MA with Prof. Dennis Francis in sociology. Mm-hmm. So my question is, so my research focuses on transgender women in the workplace. Mm-hmm. So... You know, the challenge that I am having currently is the terminology, you know, Mm -hmm. cisgenderism, Mm -hmm. intersectionality, heteropatriarchy, Mm -hmm. all of those terminologies. I mean, they're relatively new to me. I just started with these terminologies last year. So how do you how do you grapple with these terminologies and how do you link them to your thesis? Um, Because I even got an extension because it's Mm -hmm. just it's too soon for me to submit because I don't fully understand the terminology and how to 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 link them to my thesis. So what is what would your advice be yeah. as a gender and sexuality scholar? Yeah, cool. Thanks, Lisa. <laughs> you know what? You know, and the funny thing is, I'm not gonna, I'm not helping you right now. Mm-hmm. I'm just being silly on the side. Sometimes I do that. But people are gonna read your thesis, ne? they also don't understand those terms. <laughs> so yeah, one thing you can do is to create yourself a glossary of terms. Yeah. And, and you also accept that some of them, you're not going to get them completely right. Because you see, uh, you're writing from a position of being a trans person. And, and I'm imagining that in your thesis, and your proposal, you may, you want to write positively about trans experiences or trans people, etc. Yeah. And, but the language that you use actually works against you. Definitely. You see, so 
you're going to be stuck in this dilemma. That's why I'm saying create a glossary of terms and accept that this glossary is not sufficient for you. That part of your work is to create for yourself new forms of engaging with these terms that are so limiting for your experience and for the experience of the people that you're going to be dealing with. Because, I mean, I wouldn't want a person writing about trans experiences to have an entire thesis on cis It's like, why did you hide yourself? Because that's what it does. That language just invisibilized you. So I don't see anything trans. I see cis, cis people and it's like, you know, where are you? So, but you can't find other terms. And unfortunately, a lot of the language that you use in, 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 in LGBT and queer studies comes a lot from North America. And that's the unfortunate, um, even in activist circles. So we talk about, you know, um, for example, we, we focus a lot on, um, on medicalization. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Trans people must be medicalized. They must get hormonal therapy and whatever. Um, but yet, you know, in Africa, this is not really a reality for most people because we know the conditions of our hospitals, public facilities. Mm -hmm. Trans people can't get access to treatment, can't get access to hormonal therapy. So then what is the point of focusing so much on these, on these techniques that push you towards this heteronormativity when trans as a category itself hasn't been fully unpacked within the continent? Mm -hmm. So my advice would be spend more time unpacking the realities of trans than trying to engage so much with these terms that are going to hide you or hide your research and your data, if that makes sense. I'm Liddell from Visual Arts. Yeah. And first of all, I wanted to say thank you. And I think what I'll settle on is kind of this ruminating comment slash question about how, well, I was fascinated with this idea of translation or mm. vocabularies mm. or and kind of around the roles we play. Like I know I change when I'm with my dad. Yes. And you're really part of your story of, of the dynamics, the power dynamics within your home changing as your income shifted and the realization of the power dynamics within the labor forces of where your dad worked. And so um, then that leapfrogged for me to saying what you want to say, but in Isikosa mm. and how difficult that is or how different that is and how it comes out differently. So being in the visual arts, we're in this peculiar language or yeah. the visual yeah. language. And yeah. um, I just loved what you said about the, the space to imagine, the space to sit on that, that very kind of mushy place of not knowing really. and just spending some time there. And and I connected that with your, with your concepts of um, reading mm. and hanging on for dear life to certain practices um, because they were life-saving to me. That was, um, there was so much vital stuff. But I guess my question somewhere in there was, how do you see or how could you reflect a little bit more on negotiating those visual languages around the, the complications of verbal languages in different languages? Yeah. And because the, the way you told the story of the Zanelli Maholi piece, Kaylin and I, I yeah. mean, it's hard to find words for what that piece does. It, it does it all in the piece. Yeah. And so that's where I have such a problem in our department is finding words for something that's already been said mm. and so it doesn't need to be said again. That's true. And I think that there's a certain, just want to shout that somehow, <laughs> you know, like, never mind, you don't have to say anything, the work should say enough. Like maybe the way we breathe in response to it, <laughs> how we respond to it, that's yeah. speechless in a way. Yeah. And yeah. Anyhow, sorry, I'm not sure if the question in there, but uh, the vocabularies that you, from film to words to different languages, um, I just thought was amazing. We don't stay the same. And for me as a teacher, if I don't stay teachable, I'm a little bit yeah, going to fall right into some not very interesting groove and uh, me on my toes a little bit, I guess, setting challenges. Thanks, Adele. So, you know, I think it's, I mean, I like what you're saying that, you know, some visual work speaks for itself and it does, right? But um, we, we also need to accept that our ways of seeing are not the same. So sometimes I want to make a point across and through, I can take your visual, your, your work, uh, I see something different, something that you, maybe you didn't intend. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't matter to you because, I mean, I can read it. Everyone can read it anyhow. But 
there's a message that I'm trying to convey also because I've been moved by your work and I'm trying to have a conversation with other people. So, for example, in that piece, Caitlin and I, and actually this has come back again to haunt me because people were so upset that uh, they're upset by the image. <laughs> you go and Google this image. So it's a black woman and a white woman, like they're lying on top of each other. So people were so upset that how uh, Zalem Oholi positioned the white woman is that she's on top of the black woman. It's like, oh, we knew it. <laughs> 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 and, and I was like, oh, okay, this is actually so interesting. And at that moment, I was going through a lot of stuff, like, you know, trying to figure myself out in the academy. Where is my position? You know, am I really at the bottom? You know, uh, white women on top. Like, how do I deal with this? And I want to talk about, you know, intimacy and race. We're so scared to talk about this in South Africa. You know, we love each other, you know, in different ways through, you know, race and color and, and lines of gender and sexuality. So why can't we talk about this? Because this image was doing this and doing many other things that I felt, okay, I can't talk about that, but let me just, just zoom in on this moment. So... And funny enough, that was the piece that was stolen <laughs> sure. like, yeah, by a white woman. Uh, recently, I was doing a, a session at UJ and it's online. And, and I talk about this piece and people are so angered. Why do you focus on the white woman? And I'm like, guys, we live in South Africa. Like, we can't not talk about race, you know? And everybody's angry. And no, the reality is these are our dynamics and we have to find a language to talk about certain things, even if we don't agree on the starting point, yeah? Or even the ending. But we have to find a way of talking about it. How do I love white women? I do, okay, not a crime. No, not anymore, <laughs> you know? Uh, so how do we talk about these kinds of things? And for many people, they, they wanted, somebody said, you know, when I look at this picture, I imagine the white woman floating away. <laughs> like, that's your imagination. But the artist, presented this yeah and the artist allows us to imagine so you can write about the white woman floating away but i wrote about the white woman remaining and allowing us to see something else a black woman doing something else and what that dynamic does in our domestic spaces yeah and you know so there's so many different conversations and we have like as you say sometimes the words are already there, but sometimes the words are not there. And then some of us have to find the words just to excite a conversation, you know, spark some ideas, get people to talk, you know, mm -hmm. difficult conversations. And also I was writing for Black people because many people don't engage with art, to be honest. And it's not a critique. It's just sometimes there's art in galleries that is not accessible. Then there's art that we see every day that we create. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this image was at the Stevenson Gallery. And I was like, well, there are a lot of people coming here and what are they thinking, you know, when they see this? What am I thinking when I see this, when I walk into this gallery and I see this? What do I think Zanella was thinking, you know? Um, <laughs> what is Caitlin thinking? <laughs> Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more, you can check out our website.